This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 2nd, 2018. Libertarians have views that don't always fit easily into a left-wing or right-wing box, although they do seem to often, but not always, gain more favour with Republicans. In this show, I'll talk to a libertarian academic from Harvard about two policies that straddle that divide. Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast, there is still something unsustainable going on in the British system and the French system and the Canadian system. And, 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 and of course, in the US system, in some ways, even although, worse, the US although system. the US system will be over the cliff first. We'll be over the cliff first, but it oh, doesn't but that, that's give not one of, any... That's not much of a consolation to the people who are going to follow them over the cliff. It shouldn't be much comfort, okay, because in some sense, all of those systems are subsidizing too much. That's coming up in a moment, but first, by now, you know all about the Mueller investigation. You know all about the Russian collusion allegations. You know all about the denials. You know all about the Don Jr. meeting in Trump Tower. You might have an opinion on it. You might think that anyone on the Trump campaign team was entitled to seek opposition information from wherever. You might think that they were entitled to hear out the Russians who contacted them. You might think that it doesn't matter whether those Russians turned out to be FSB spies or that the Trump team had no way of knowing that, so you can't hold that against them. You might even think that a president who commits a crime is entitled to pardon himself. You could agree or disagree with any of those positions and still be a loyal American. But that leaves out one thing. I'll get to it in a moment. But one thing to understand first. It's surprisingly difficult for humans to make up random numbers. Our brains like patterns. We can't get away from them. For example, during the Vietnam War, at five o'clock every day, the US military briefers would tell journalists how the war was going. It took a long time for the journalists to notice that the number of enemy dead in any given week never ended with the figure zero or five. Never 65 people killed, it was 64. Week in, week out, for several years, the enemy dead was never 60, it was 59 or 61 or 71. Needless to say, the military were lying. In trying to pick random, precise-sounding numbers, they chose a pattern that was vastly improbable. There are a lot of mathematical tools that clever people can use to analyse large volumes of data and see if that data is really coming from the source that it claims to be from. There's a BBC programme that I'm a fan of. You might have heard me mention it before. It's called More or Less. It's a nerdy programme about statistics. They took a look at the Russian presidential election a while back. They didn't report on the politics. They used those sort of mathematical tools to test whether the election results were real or not. And they discovered two things. The first was that there was massive electoral fraud. Don't look so shocked. 
And the second thing is that even without the fraud, Vladimir Putin would have easily won anyway. So why the cheating? Because Putin craves the legitimacy that a high turnout would give him. That tells us something about him. He wants to be seen as legitimate. He craves approval. I thought about this when I heard another BBC programme last week. This was a major expose, major in the UK anyway. It centres on political spending in the Brexit referendum in 2016, specifically spending on consultancy and Facebook ads from Cambridge Analytica. They were up to their necks in that referendum. But the thing is that in the UK, they're pretty strict about spending limits in elections. And the Leave campaign, the anti-EU campaign, had a lump of money that they wanted to spend on campaign ads... That money is a problem for two reasons. The first problem, they'd already hit their spending limit, so they laundered the money through a small Northern Irish political party called the DUP that was also supporting the Leave campaign. That's a big problem for them now, but I'm not so interested in the problem of where the money went. The real thing is where the money came from. It seems pretty clear that the money came from a businessman, Maybe I should say it came via a businessman who has deep connections to organised crime in Ukraine and the previous Putin-supporting regime there. The former leader of Ukraine and his henchmen are now wanted in the Ukraine, but they're living under Putin's protection in Russia. It's almost an aside that the far-right presidential candidate in France, Marine Le Pen, got millions of euro in funding from a Kremlin-controlled Czech bank. Don't imagine that Putin supports any of these causes. Putin doesn't support Trump, he doesn't support Brexit, he doesn't support French neo-fascists. Putin supports Putin. And nothing else. He sees the world as a zero-sum game. If you do worse, he does better. Sure, it matters if Trump or people close to him colluded with a foreign power, and that's a big issue. But it's not the issue I'm talking about here. What I'm saying is that in world affairs, particularly in the eyes of someone like Putin, there are no friends, only interests. If anyone in America thinks that he's on their side, they will regret that error. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Geoffrey Myron. He's a senior lecturer and director of undergraduate studies at the Department of Economics at Harvard. He's also the director of economic studies at the Cato Institute. And Geoffrey, I think it's fair to say you're a libertarian. You believe in the minimum possible amount of government interference. And you've written about two aspects of that, one with healthcare and one with uh, drugs policy. I want to move on to drugs policy in a minute. Um, but we talked to Yaron Brook on the podcast. One of the things that I found out researching for talking to Yaron Brook was that the British health system, which is paid for through the taxes of British people, 
actually costs British taxpayers less than the amount that American taxpayers pay via their taxes. So in other words, the idea that uh, the Na- National Health Service, the British healthcare system, costs the British a lot of extra taxes is actually untrue. That's kind of surprising, isn't it, that the Americans pay more in tax for healthcare, even though they also have to pay huge premiums uh, for health insurance? It's certainly right that there are big differences across the developed economies in how much is being spent, public or, and or private, uh, for healthcare or health insurance. And the U.S. is at the very top of that in per capita terms. Mm-hmm. Well, some of that seems to be that as economies get richer, indeed as individuals get richer, they tend to spend more of their available income on health care okay, relative to other goods. Right? Mm-hmm. There are only so many meals one can eat. There's only so many gyms one can belong to or so many vacations. But if one can spend money that extends your life, then you have the opportunity to do all sorts of other good things with the longer life. So it's not surprising, and you should probably expect that uh, health as a fraction of overall spending will tend to go up as incomes get richer. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has roughly the highest per capita income, so that probably does explain some of these differences. Now, a lot of the differences is almost certainly the differences in the healthcare systems. So many countries are controlling the prices at which healthcare is bought and sold to a significant degree, not 100%. There are, of course, private aspects of the provision in most countries. Mm-hmm. But if you're controlling prices then and getting the same number of doctor visits or surgeries or whatever, then, of course, uh, you're going to see higher expenditure overall in a country that isn't controlling prices. And the U.S. is doing that less than many of the comparison countries. Sure, now, sure, but not only not only is the U.S. doing that less, if you eat, completely disregard the amount that Americans and American employers and individuals pay in healthcare premiums, just the American taxpayer is paying considerably more than the British taxpayer, who typically doesn't pay any healthcare uh, private uh, insurance premiums. So I agree that's a striking fact. I have not actually documented or seen that fact myself, but I'm more than happy to accept it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think. In terms of thinking about the policy questions, the question we should be focused not necessarily just on the breakdown, but on what are the incentives that are created, uh, good and bad, by the different types of systems. So the U.S. system is relatively focused on private provision of health care and health insurance, and other many other rich countries, UK included, are more focused on government provision. And libertarians would say there's some potentially some significant negatives of the government provision that the price controls or limitations on the procedures that are reimbursed by the government system uh, might do some harm. They might disincentivize innovation. They might discourage really talented people from going into uh, the healthcare profession or in trying to develop new medications or new surgical techniques or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and and, and it, just, to, just to pause you on that, that's something that's incredibly, I'm sure you'd agree, incredibly difficult to measure. But you can want to look at one output at the very end, which is life expectancy. And countries that have, by Western standards, very low spending on healthcare, such as the UK, strikingly, have better life expectancy than the US. I agree, and that's a, that's definitely a challenge for the view that the uh, private provision is better. We are spending more and getting, depending on exactly which metric, you know, similar outcomes or even worse outcomes, as you suggested. So that seems like a really rotten deal. Now, I think that there are some subtleties that one should look at. For example, if you go sort of cause of death by cause of death, 
Okay, there are some differences across countries that don't seem to be really related to uh, their healthcare systems. Okay, the U.S. partially has a low life expectancy because we have a relatively high homicide rate. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that homicide rate is presumably has little to do with what kind of healthcare system we have. It may well have a lot more to do with policies I think we're going to talk about in a minute, which is drug policies, yes. which generate incentives for people to use violence. Yes. And so well, let me pose you let me pose you that and, and of course and as I acknowledge, it's incredibly difficult to control for all of those and it's very, very difficult to control for it in a way that everybody might agree with. But people in the US and of course, you know, we have a huge health healthcare debate. And there are people on both sides of that. Some people who want to socialize the system more that's to say, to move to having single payer, to having more like a European healthcare system. And some people right. like yourself who want to have less socialization of the system to free up the market, to have it more uh, like the market for TVs or hamburgers or whatever. Right. Now, people who are on the opposite side of the argument to you have pretty good models and they can point and they can say, look at the system in France, look at the system in the UK. They pay dramatically less. It's much cheaper. That makes it a much lower drag on the economy. They get very good healthcare and it doesn't seem to be an apocalypse. Do you have a system anywhere in the world that you can point to that you can say we should move more in that direction. Is there any already working system that you think would be an improvement? Well, I don't. I think I would say that the U.S. is, in one level, a working system. There's a lot of high quality health care available, and a large fraction of people are able to afford it, whether privately or via the government systems. But I think I would also emphasize two things in terms of being confident about anybody's health care system. First is that uh, all of the healthcare systems or the healthcare systems plus the retirement systems are growing at rates that are not sustainable. So even though expenditure per capita is substantially lower in other rich countries relative to the U.S., it is growing at a rate that's very similar, in some cases higher than the U.S. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that price controls and quantity controls and things, there is still something unsustainable going on in the British system and the French system and the Canadian system. And, 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 and of course, in the U.S. system, in some ways, even although, worse, the U.S. Although system. the U.S. system will be over the cliff first. We'll be over the cliff first. But it oh, doesn't but that, that's give not one any... Of, that's not much of a consolation to the people who are going to follow them over the cliff. It shouldn't be much comfort, okay, because at some sense, all of those systems are subsidizing too much, have a level of expenditure that can't possibly be sustained. So they're all doing something wrong. And they all are similar in that a very large fraction of healthcare is being significantly subsidized. In the U.S., you know, we have a huge fraction of the population that's eligible for Medicare, a significant mm-hmm. fraction eligible for Medicaid, and uh, most of the working age population that's not on one of those two programs is still being subsidized through the tax system to buy overly you know, a more generous health insurance than they otherwise would. Mm-hmm. So. That says the difference is not necessarily so dramatic. There's a lot of subsidy even throughout the U.S. system, intervention in the U.S. system. Yes. Um, yeah. um, both the U.K. and the U.S. spend about 7% of their total GDP on mm-hmm. 
taxpayer-funded healthcare. And that's not even taking account of the fact that, of course, the US has a considerably higher GDP than the, uh, than the UK. So if you compare it on dollar amounts rather than percent of GDP amounts, then the US looks even more expensive. But sure. I want to press you on one thing. There are huge difficulties in the US healthcare system, not least people finding themselves without insurance, not least people going bankrupt because they get leukemia or they get some other long-term chronic serious disease. In Europe, that's literally unheard of. The number of people who go bankrupt because of the healthcare that they need is zero. So the fact that's true, but the fact that those people don't go bankrupt doesn't mean someone didn't pay. Oh, for sure. Someone yes. else, someone else paid. Yes. And but, so but the system that they have, we should be asking, down the price. in addition to asking about the insurance, well, but if insurance presses down the price too much, you can define too much in a second, too much, yeah, yeah. then it's going to eliminate the supply. It's going yes, to, uh, or I, it's I going to discourage that, that innovation. Doesn't, that, that doesn't appear to be the case given that people in France, people in the UK have a longer uh, life expectancy. Now, there, of course, I agree with you. There's there are a lot of confounding factors there, but it certainly doesn't compress down the f- price to such an extent that there is a visible problem coming from that. Well, not so far in invisible ways, but also, and this is the other point I wanted to make: mm-hmm. we've been living in a world where there is one large economy, and to some extent, there are parts of there are non-regulated or substantially unregulated, not less subsidized parts of, of all of the major economies mm-hmm. where one can make a lot of profit. One can try to charge market prices. One does face significant incentive for innovation in the production of medicines and equipment and surgeries and things like that. If you have the U.S. or and if other countries go even further than they've gone in completely Take trying to reduce the profit motive in trying to uh, control the expenditure um, in the ways that they're doing. My fear is that you will then get much less of the innovation. And the innovation isn't just affecting the U.S. The innovation is clearly spilling over in various ways to all countries. Okay? And that would be a huge, huge negative for the world. I, I want to make sure it's clear for, for listeners. And it's, I tend to agree with you on this point. There is a danger that, for example, if healthcare is that much cheaper in the UK or other European countries, then there's a danger that doctors from those countries will say, hey, I can double my salary or make five times my salary if I move to the US. And then you create a lack of supply in those right. countries. But right. if taking, I taking a God's eye, taking a God's eye point of view, no, hold, hold on for a second, Jeffy, taking a God's eye point of view, that those huge healthcare premiums that people in the US are paying, they feed into inflation right down the market, such that if you want to go to medical school, even at, I'd be almost afraid to ask you how much a medical degree at Harvard is likely to cost somebody who's paying full whack. But the bottom line is that, you know, you can come out of uh, even a reasonable university with many hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt uh, that is feeding into inflation in, for example, um claims, uh, liability claims, medical insurance. And there's an awful lot of people down the line getting very fat off those uh, very high healthcare costs. And it's not a true market because if I 
go into McDonald's and I say, I want my burger done this way and not that way. And McDonald's say, no, we're not going to do it for you like that. I can just go next door into Burger King and get what I want. But if I go into a doctor and I say, I've got a pain in my arm. My arm must be broken. Will you put it in a cast? And the doctor says, no, your arm's not broken. You're having a heart attack. You need heart surgery. I'm in no position to argue. Isn't it true that customer power just can't exist in a healthcare market? No, I would disagree with that fairly strongly. I agree there are some situations where an individual uh, patient or cut slash customer would feel that he or she did not have many choices except to, uh, but there are mechanisms which challenge that. One of them is uh, medical malpractice. Uh, liability. So if a doctor you know, does heart surgery when all you need is a sure, broken yeah, but arm. that just inflates the cost even no, further. No, 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 no. That provides the incentive for, for doctors not to do the unnecessary procedures and overall should reduce unnecessary cost. Second, I agree that there are a lot of elements oh, where oh, consumers on, don't on, have no, a lot no, of Jeffrey, choice Jeffrey, in health Jeffrey, you're saying that, it's, that, that, that uh, it's all fine in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. Medical malpractice insurance is enormously expensive for doctors, and that's one of the reasons why they have to charge so much money. That's not pushing down the price. It's pushing it up. I, I disagree. Uh, it is true that it's expensive, and but the overall effect is to reduce unnecessary. I mean, we're not just talking about the total cost. We should be talking about cost effectiveness. We should be talking about whether mm-hmm. we're getting the r- reduction in the right costs, the right ex- the, 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 the unneeded, the unnecessary uh, expenditures. And I think the evidence is that malpractice insurance does operate Do, do you know what the word defensive medicine means? Sorry, say again. Do, are you familiar with the term defensive medicine? Yes. Defensive medicine means doctors pr- going yes. carrying out a large number of procedures that have no benefit whatsoever to the health of the patient. What they are there to do is to provide evidence that they did the right thing in order to defeat a malpractice suit. I think that's a, only one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin is that, first of all, in many cases, the defensive medicine involves things which are relatively innocuous, ordering some additional lab tests, doing an extra scan, things like that. Secondly, of course, doing additional tests can have some value. The value may not be enough to make it worth the cost, but it may w- still have some diagnostic value or, or, or uh, other medical value by having an additional test that confirms the diagnosis based on initial factors. But the way in which it would work appropriately is if the customer okay, was faced with okay, paying for those extra costs. I'm married to someone who's in the healthcare business, and she gives example after example after example of where doctors are ordering all these extra tests. And she frankly calls the doctors and says, do you really need all these extra tests? Let me explain to you how this works. And they say, oh, I didn't know that. If I'd known that, I wouldn't have bothered to order the extra test. Okay. Now, why did they never bother to do that on their own? Because the customer was not going to have to pay nearly all or maybe not any of the cost of those extra tests. Mm-hmm. Okay? And therefore, you don't have the mechanism that you have in unregulated markets where customers exert discipline on the provider of the product to keep them from selling things that the customer, in fact, doesn't want. Mm -hmm. If you're the customer and the doctor says, well, this extra test will add us a little more certainty and the cost of you is zero, well, you might as well get it. But if the cost is $500, then you're going to think about it twice. So I would assert that it's the fact that we don't have sufficiently large co-pays and deductibles uh, in insurance policies, and that is exacerbated by the fact that government is subsidizing the purchase of insurance policies that's taking customers out of the business of 
asking questions and thinking about the cost relative to value of the health procedures that they get. Okay, but of the 190 countries on the face of this planet, you're not aware of one of them that has a system that you would like the United States to move towards? Well, I could point to the you know the United States before say 19, 1965 when we didn't have Medicare clearly, or Medicaid. Clearly, yes, but clearly the, the, and, the same. And the evidence on, on life expectancy, the evidence on which on life expectancy and the rate at which it's declining in the U.S., which is that it declined for decades and decades before we adopted Medicare and Medicaid, and it's just declined at almost exactly the same. Uh, sorry, life expectancy has gone up at, uh, yes. at almost exactly the same rate since we adopted Medicare and Medicaid. There's a paper by a very well-established economist uh, at MIT that argues that the introduction of Medicare did not have any beneficial effect on the health of the elderly. Okay, so well, let's let's pause that there because we've we've okay. gone on a long time about healthcare, and I actually want to use that question as a link because. Even if you can't get a model country that you would move towards in terms of healthcare policy, can you think of one for drug policy? Well, again, no country is currently ideal. So a few countries are no, no, much, much closer to the ideal. Uh, the Netherlands is better, especially with respect to marijuana. I would say Portugal is probably the best of any uh, country I know in any detail. Yeah, Portugal isn't, it isn't is, a country that a lot of people pay attention to. It's kind of sticking out there at the end of Spain into the Atlantic. Can you just give a brief summary of what Portugal did in the last 20 years with its drug policy? Yes. In 2001, Portugal did what they called decriminalizing essentially all drugs, not just marijuana, but also cocaine, opioids, a number of other drugs. Now, they called it decriminalization because under the existing UN treaties, uh, member countries, signatories to the treaties are not supposed to actually legalize drugs, but they are allowed to decriminalize use. In practice, what undoubtedly happened to a significant degree is Portugal has de-emphasized the enforcement of its drug laws, both those on the consumption side and those on the production side. It is simply not interfering, churning the markets, generating all the uncertainty and violence that characterizes many drug markets in other countries, especially the U.S., that are interfered with on a much more regular basis. And And over that period, they saw small changes in use, some mild increases in use, mainly decreases in use, especially for youth. They saw reductions in the incidence of HIV uh, infection. They saw reductions in the rates of overdoses from opioids. Uh, they saw no meaningful changes in crime or any other outcome that's typically attributed to or connected with drugs. So that has been a, an incredibly successful experiment. It's all completely consistent with the claims that libertarians would make about how legalization uh, is a better policy than policies of prohibition. I'm looking at a chart. It's a chart of number of incarcerated Americans from 1920 to, it's actually 2014. It ticks up all the way along to about 1980. And mm-hmm. in the 1980s and 90s, the number of people in jail in the US just explodes. That's mo- mainly due to imprisoning nonviolent drug users, isn't it? Uh, that's an overstatement. There are certainly some nonviolent drug users who are being incarcerated. There are many people being incarcerated because they may have, may have committed some violent crimes and some drug crimes, and they ended up being prosecuted on the, for the drug crimes because mm-hmm. they're easier to prove. And so it's not entirely right to think that they're nonviolent. But even if you took all drug prisoners in the U.S. system you would get something like 20 to 25% averaged over the last 30, 40 years. So 
some of the claims about how incredibly excessive the drug incarceration has been in the U.S. are overstated. It's huge. It's a lot of people, and in my view, almost all of it is misguided, but it's not the whole story. Now, some other people are incarcerated because of drug prohibition, Mm -hmm. even though they're not there for a drug crime. They may have committed violence and fighting over drug territory. They may have committed some sort of property crime to afford a drug habit. They may have violated their parole by having smoked marijuana and then sent back to jail, even though their original charge had nothing to do with drugs whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it may well be that a substantially higher fraction than that 20 to 25% you could attribute to drug prohibition. And of course, you also have perhaps more crime of other kinds because the police are focused on enforcing drug crimes instead of trying to deter you know, murder, homo- robbery, rape, and, and those kinds of crimes. I want to just convey this scale of increase just a little bit. And the chart that I have here, it's the U.S. state and federal prison population. So this doesn't count county jails and so forth. So this is just the state right. and federal prison population. That's typically where uh, people convicted of drug-related crimes go. Up to about 19, between about 1925 and 1980, the number of people in that prison system goes from about 100,000 to about Mm 200,000. Since 1980, it has gone up eightfold. So 1925 mm-hmm. to 1980, it doubles. 1980 to today, it, it goes up eightfold. That's an enormous right. increase. It is an increase that is clearly tragic in many people's lives. It contributes to youth delinquency in the sense that you have a huge number of children growing up without fathers uh, because they're in prison. It makes those millions of people who go through that system almost unemployable in at least in in uh, any right. uh, real sense isn't something insane going on here oh i fully agree the only slight caveat i would uh, sort of suggest is that it's not just drug prohibition and drug prohibition may even be in part a reflection of a deeper issue which is Basically, Michelle Alexander's book called The New Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Her argument is that as the civil rights movement was accelerating and having successes, and as the ability of some Americans to suppress African Americans via Jim Crow laws and other legal mechanisms was declining because of civil rights expansions in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. they ended up trying to find a new way to suppress African Americans, and that new way to suppress African Americans was the drug laws. Mm-hmm. As you, so you know, the drug laws and those prisoners that you've just been describing are highly disproportionately uh, people of color, African American, Hispanic, and it, so it's, on. It's, and it's even though drug noting, use It's rate, also worth noting, Jeffrey, that when you do non-criminal surveys, drug use amongst white people and black people is almost indistinguishable. There doesn't seem to be any particular d- different, you know, there's no precisely. pattern that different differs by race. But when you Absolutely. see who's sent to prison, it is overwhelmingly African Americans. No, I, and so there are multiple things which could be explaining this huge increase in incarceration, which uh, we couldn't easily sort out. Some combination of the adoption of drug prohibition, some combination of some increase in the repressiveness of such social attitudes or their taste for punishment broadly, or as exhibited by three strikes, or some interaction where this 
fear of the baby boom generation, the fear of African Americans having more uh, legal rights and more uh, w more wealth and more political access and all that led to using whatever means were available, such as the drug laws, as a way to push back against the expanded freedom that African Americans were were beginning to uh, be able to enjoy in that period. The U.S. Uh, libertarian movement, which I think you are part of, has been very successful in influencing conservative Republican policy in terms of healthcare, much more than in terms of drug crime. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm afraid that some people who call themselves libertarians okay, are more Republican than they are libertarian, more conservative than they are libertarian. Um, I also think that at one level, conservatives have, oh, sorry, libertarians have not been so conservative in getting conservatives to focus on drug policy properly because the conservatives have all been focused on repealing Obamacare. They should be focused on reforming, moderating the growth of Medicare because that is the enormous fiscal time bomb that's going to go off over the next uh, 10, 20 years. So libertarians are trying very hard to change conservatives' views and to focus on the program, which is the single most expensive and growing the fastest. And we've been very ineffective on that, unfortunately. Jeffrey Myron, Senior Lecturer and Director of Undergraduate Studies at the Department of Economics at Harvard, also Director of Economic Studies at Cato Institute. Thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. It was, a, it was lots of fun. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to Jeffrey's books and articles. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Jeffrey Myron at Jeffrey A. Myron. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. And I now have a Patreon account, so if you'd like to support the podcast, I would really appreciate that. All the details are on the website. Coming up next Monday, that's July 9th, I'll be talking to someone on the opposite side of the marijuana debate, Dr. Ed Gogek, who's a psychiatrist and a specialist in addiction. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.